So hey everyone, I'm Chris. I, and I work for InterVarsity at Amherst College. So I graduated two years ago and I'm not the lead pastor here. Robert's not here. So if you're new, it's not normal. Don't worry. Um, but I do get to introduce to you our new sermon series, which is called Faith and Practice, as you can see. Um, and so for the summer, we're doing a, a couple weeks series on the book of Hebrews, chapter 13 in particular. And it's called Faith and Practice because that's sort of how the book of Hebrews is laid out, faith and then practice, with chapter 13 being practice. So we're going to spend a couple weeks as a church, minus the students mostly who are gone, and like looking at the faith as described in the book of Hebrews and talking about how we want that faith to shape the practice of this church. We want to, the, the faith described in the book of Hebrews to shape our church. And so, because I'm introducing this sermon series, and because it deals with the whole book of Hebrews, we're going to be reading a lot of Hebrews today, um, like most of the book I'm going to preach through. So if there's, there are Bibles underneath your seat, I, um, it's going to be a little interactive, meaning that we're going to read it together. So grab one of the Bibles under your seat and, and, and uh, follow along as we read, because if you don't, you're going to get lost or bored, because I'm going to be reading a lot. But if you do, Hopefully, we'll um, learn a lot about the book of Hebrews. I, I Honestly, I love the book of Hebrews. So I'm fired up about getting to talk to you about the entire book. I also kind of made that decision myself. Robert didn't tell me to preach through the whole book of Hebrews, but I just couldn't help it. There's so much awesome stuff. And if we're going to talk about the practice of the faith, it makes sense, right, to, to outline all that the faith says. So um, that's where we're going. Cool? The whole book of Hebrews. And it'll only take like two hours, don't worry. Um, that was a joke. Let me pray, and then, and then we'll dive in. Yeah, pray along with me. Actually, pray for yourself in this time. Just ask that God would be speaking to you from his word. Yeah, take a moment to... Be honest with God about where you are and what you need, and to humbly ask him to speak from the book of Hebrews. And if you would also pray for the person on your right and left, that they would have a powerful encounter with God. Pray that they would see Jesus rightly. And Lord, I need your help. God, I pray that you would um, fill me with your spirit even right now, that you would help me speak. God, that you would direct my thoughts and words and that you would have your way in this space. Lord, we, we need you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So we're going to start looking at the book of Hebrews. Just open your books to uh, Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. I'm not going to read the entire thing, but we're going to start with the first verse because it's epic. Verse 1 of Hebrews. Long ago. Actually, what page is it on in the, in the Bibles you have there? Does it have page numbers? 1001. So if you're looking for it, it's on page 1001. All right. Verse 1, 
Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Epic beginning. So one of the reasons why scholars don't think that this book was written by Paul, the apostle, is because it doesn't have an introduction like Paul's do. Actually, look, at, look to the, the page right before is Philemon. That's a typical Pauline introduction. Paul, a prisoner for Christ, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon. Talking about who, who, yeah, Paul's saying, I'm writing this letter to these people, and here's the purpose of the letter. But that doesn't exist in our, in our book of Hebrews, right? There's, an, there's no introduction at all. It just dives in. And you get a sense of what the book's going to be about. It's going to be about Jesus. Sort of no holds barred. We're going to talk about who Jesus is and how awesome he is. And so um, right away, look what we learn about Jesus in this, in this first four verses. We learn that he's the final and supreme revelation from God. We learn that he's the heir of all things. He's the creator of the world. He, in his body, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of the divine nature. He upholds the universe. Jesus made purification for sins and is seated at the right hand of God. He's superior to angels. And he has a name that is above all other names, which is the Son of God. What an intro. And so as we go through the book of Hebrews, you're going to see that the author's kind of unpacking those ideas. The book of Hebrews is all about the supremacy of Christ. Speaking to Jewish Christians, the book of Hebrews is unpacking how Christ is the fulfillment of all the things in the Old Testament, how Christ is the the climax of all the things that have been building for millennia that the Jews have been looking forward to. So it introduces some of the themes in the book, supremacy of Christ. And so actually, as we do this sermon series, the invitation to you is to be reading through Hebrews regularly. Try to read through the whole book a couple times. I know it'll be encouraging to you. And um, as you're doing it, be asking yourself, who is Christ? Who is the Messiah that, that this author is describing? So we're going to go through chapter by chapter. And I'm not going to, there's so much. And it's going to be painful for me to skip a lot of things because it's epic. But read it on your own time. You'll notice there's kind of a structure where the author has an awesome encouragement and then a, a warning, and then an encouragement, exhortation, and then a stark warning again. That's sort of the pattern until we get to the end, and I'll slow down on the end because it's amazing. Chapters 10, 11, and 12, I think, are the most epic three-chapter section in all of Scripture. So that's kind of where we're headed. So verse 2 is, that, is the first warning. Look at me at verse one, verses 1 through 3. Sorry, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. It says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? There's our first warning. Kind of a nice preacher's technique here. Pay attention before the letter starts. Jesus is supreme, now pay attention. Chapter 3. The author highlights Jesus is better than Moses. Verse 3 of chapter 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. And verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant 
to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So saying to Jewish Christians, Moses was important. He gave the law. He taught the people how to relate to God. But Jesus was the one in charge of all of that. Moses is, a, is just a brick in the house that Jesus was building. Jesus is the architect that's been planning this construction over millennia. He's the master builder. Jesus is superior to Moses. In the end of chapter 3 and into chapter 4, there's another warning. Verse 12 of chapter 3. Take care then, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And then in the end of chapter 4 and into chapter 5, chapter 4, verse 14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is also better than the high priests of this world. You see in that passage that Jesus is our sinless high priest. He's perfect. He's totally superior to the high priests of this world. He's totally superior, but he's also sympathetic. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to be in the dirt of life. He's well acquainted with grief. He's the perfect high priest precisely because he's divine and he's suffered along with us. He knows what it's like to be with us. So the role of high priest was to represent the people to God. And who would be better qualified than the God-man, Jesus, who represents both parties in the covenant? He seamlessly bridges the gap between our broken reality and perfect holiness. He's the perfect high priest. So I used to be a huge fan of the Navy SEALs. And I, I still like the Navy SEALs, but um, used to be like, I read about them all the time. Uh, and there's a technique that they do called halo drop. Is that familiar to anyone? Cool. I get to teach you about it. Um, HALO stands for High Altitude Low Opening. And what they do is when they're going into enemy territory, they do a, a paradrop. So they're dropping people out of planes with parachutes. But it's risky to float down into enemy territory on a parachute because you're just kind of a sitting duck or a, a floating duck. Um, and so what they do, instead of drifting down vulnerably, is they do a high altitude. So they have a gas mask. It's like unpressurized because you have to jump out of the plane. And um, they're above the radar of the enemy, but they drop in and don't open the chute until the very last second. So from like 20,000 feet, they're in free fall until like 500 feet from the ground. And then they pull the chute, high altitude, low opening. And the way they do that is they get past the enemy's defenses, and then all of a sudden, they're into enemy territory. This is what Jesus does in the incarnation. High altitude, low opening. The supreme son of God the one who upholds the universe by a word of his power, the one through whom all things were created, high and transcendent, all of a sudden in a manger in Bethlehem, behind enemy lines, and the revolution starts, right? That's our king. High altitude, low opening. And then in verse 6, there's another warning here against apostasy. The author tells his, his Jewish listeners don't fall away from this. As you're reading through the book of Hebrews, chapter 6 is going to strike you. 
It's intense. And the warning against apostasy is grave. One of the themes that you'll find in the book of Hebrews is stand firm. Hold fast our confidence. And here in chapter 6, he's unpacking the horror of falling away from Christ. And then in chapter 7, so this is some of the stuff that I, I would love to unpack more, but I have to zoom through it. Chapter 7, the author compares Jesus to Melchizedek, who's a Genesis figure, and there's a lot there. But basically, the author is saying that Jesus is the priest king. He's both. He's the high priest and the king. And he's priest forever. He's the eternal priest king. Whoa. There's a lot to unpack there, but skip over that. Chapters 8 and 9 highlight that Jesus is not just a better priest. He's not just sympathetic and superior. He's operating in a whole new covenant. Everything's different. He ushers in a whole new way to relate to God. So look at chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not the tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats or calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and calves, wait, what is it? But for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Amen. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And then skipping down to verse 24. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Let's go. Jesus has once for all entered the holy places on our behalf to make us right with God. So that leads us to what I just called the most epic three chapters in all of Scripture. A bold claim, I know, but stick with me here. Starting in chapter 10. Okay, quick Trinitarian theological note. Verse 5 of chapter 10 says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said... Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, a body you have prepared for me. He said, that's quoting from Leviticus and attributing it to Christ. Can you imagine being a first century Jewish reader and hearing the author of Hebrews attributing a quotation from Leviticus and Numbers as having come from the mouth of Christ, the mouth of Jesus? So who is this Christ? He's the Lord of Scripture. He's the Word of God. He's the one who's spoken from all eternity. He's the one that they've been listening. They've been hearing his voice, and now they get to see him in person. 
It's like when you've only known someone on the phone, and then you get to meet them face to face, or like if you've been in a long distance relationship, and phone calls are a great way to keep up with people. Katie and I dated long distance for four years, but there's nothing like being together. And it's those moments together that make all the phone calls worth it. They're, they're, they're hearing here that the voice that they've been listening to for thousands of years has been the voice of Christ, the person who, who embodies the exact imprint of the divine nature. They've now seen him face to face. Anyway, we're talking about how Christ is the perfect sacrifice. Verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. Notice the speaker in that quotation, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit inspired the Old Testament? Yes. Jesus spoke in the Old Testament? Yes. Awesome. Uh, the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. And he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. We no longer have any need to offer sacrifices for our sins, to make ourselves right with God, because Jesus has done it once and for all. The ultimate judge of the universe doesn't remember our sins anymore. You can feel the intensity starting to rise as the author unpacks the meaning of Christ's perfect sacrifice for us. Look at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, just through the curtain, which is his flesh, the curtain is describing the the veil that separated the holy of holies from the rest of the world, that separated the, the holy place from the secular, the profane. He's saying Jesus' flesh is the barrier between the holy of holies, the holiest, the presence of God and the, and the profane, the, the way that we live, the secular world that we live in. Jesus' flesh is the barrier, and now it's permeable. He's opened a way in his flesh for us to get to God. That's what he's saying. And Christ himself is the way to the holy presence of God that anyone can enter in. Continuing, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The author of Hebrews is describing a community, placing their entire hope and trust and faith in the accomplished work of Christ for their salvation. A people who can, because of their confidence in Christ's sacrifice on their behalf, lean into the presence of God together. Because they know their sins have been paid for, once and for all. We can approach the throne of God without any condemnation whatsoever. And then comes another exhortation. Don't give up hope. Press on in the faith. You can bank all your hope and joy and satisfaction on Jesus no matter what. Chapter 10, verse 34. 
You had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Verse 39, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And then he, in in chapter 11, unpacks this definition of faith. A really popular verse here in chapter 11, verse 1, uh, reads, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And people read that and and say that's the definition of faith. Faith is um, belief without seeing or belief without evidence is how they define it from this verse. But actually that definition is reducible to like a blind hope or wishful thinking. The chapter doesn't end after verse 1. It goes on to tell the stories of the faithful. People who hoped in God through crazy circumstances and got to see God do miraculous work in their lives. People who trusted when things seemed bleak when hope felt impossible. People who set their hearts on a different hope than the one the world has to offer. People who trusted in God and God's purposes. People who are longing for the inbreaking of God's kingdom. Listen to the climax of chapter 11. He's gone through the hall of fame of the faith. And the chapter 11, I think, culminates in verse 32 and on from there. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering around in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. The NIV says, in holes in the ground. That culmination, that that list, to me, is a better definition of faith than just verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Faith is that gritty, unrelenting dependence in the face of overwhelming odds. It's not belief in spite of the evidence, but obedience in spite of the consequences. It's trust and perseverance in spite of the circumstances. To trust in Jesus' sacrifice for us and to place all of our hope in the coming of his kingdom, that's faith. To bank everything on Jesus. The encouragement is building to the thesis statement in the book of Hebrews here in chapter 11, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Who is this Christ? It's Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith. The word for founder can be translated chief or champion or prime author or pioneer. He's the first one. He blazed the trail. He went before us into the Holy of Holies, into the throne room of God, and he sprung open the door for humans to come to God. He's the pioneer. He's the founder of our faith. 
It also says he's the perfecter of our faith. And perfecter means not just that he did it perfectly, but that he completed it. He accomplished the faith. He's the finisher of the faith. He's the one who loved perfectly, trusted perfectly. Among all these heroes in chapter 11, he's the one who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of God. He did it. He accomplished our faith. He perfected and completed our faith. So we can follow closely after him knowing that the path that he blazed leads to life. He's the founder and the finisher. He's the A to Z. So when we place our trust in him, we're betting on a fixed fight. We know how it ends. We know that Jesus conquers. He already did it. He beat death. So here's the end of chapter 12, and then we'll get into the verses that I'm actually supposed to preach. I'm in verse 28 of chapter 12. The final encouragement and warning in our letter before chapter 13 comes. Uh, I'm actually going to start in verse 26. Now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Our last warning slash encouragement is that everything is going to be shaken. Heaven and earth but that Jesus' kingdom is going to last. And everything else is going to fall away. So it's a warning because it's saying, take care lest we build something that isn't going to last. But it's encouragement knowing that we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We've received an unshakable kingdom inheritance. So let us offer worship with reverence and awe because our God is a consuming fire. The image there for me is like um, when you scoop up a bunch of sand to sift it, like prospecting, I guess, is like the, whatever. Like you're a little kid prospecting for gold in the sandbox. I don't know. Not a real thing. It's just an image to help make it make sense. But it, there's a bunch of stuff in there all mixed together, good stuff, bad stuff, stuff that's going to last through the sifting and stuff that's not. And it's saying everything is going to be shaken and only the kingdom of God is going to last. And there's a, some sort of like mystery about what is God's kingdom. It's a mysteriously diffused thing. That's, that's pervasive in the world. And it's not really clear what's going to last and what's not, but everything's going to be shaken and only the things that are of God are going to last. There's a C.T. Studd poem that I love. The last stanza of which says, there's only one life it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I'm dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has burned out for thee. I'll read it again. Only one life and it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I'm dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life was burned out for thee. If everything's going to be shaken except for Christ's kingdom, how foolish would we be to build things that aren't going to last? To labor, to build stuff that's just going to get sifted out. But on the other hand, how wise would it be to be building God's kingdom knowing that our work is not in vain? It's going to last.
So that's sort of the arc of Hebrews 1 through 12. And the question we're left with is, in light of Christ's one-time, totally perfect, effective sacrifice, in light of the fact that you have unhindered access to the throne room, in light of the fact that you've been given an unshakable inheritance in Christ, how would you live if final success was already assured? What if your needs, your deepest needs, were already totally met in Christ? What if the most powerful and supreme judge had already looked at you and said, worthy, beloved? What if the king of glory had called you his child? And he said, you have unlimited access to the throne room whenever you want. And I'm going to come get you and bring you to myself forever. He's coming back for us. And everything that isn't his, everything that hurts us, everything that perpetuates brokenness is going to end. How then will we live? Because that's the faith that the book of Hebrews is outlining in verses, or chapters 1 through 12. What's the practice? What would a church look like that believed those truths? Well, we read ahead. So Olivia read the chapters, chapter 13, verse 1 through 3. So you kind of know the answer. Um, but let's just imagine what the end of the book would look like if you didn't know, if you hadn't read Hebrews 13. It could say, so gather together the strongest people, pool your resources, and fight to overthrow the governments of this world because only Jesus is king. Only he has rightful claim to power. It could say that. And honestly, at this point, after chapters 10 through 12, I'd be down. I'm down for a revolution at this point. We're, we're taking the hill. Only Jesus is king. On the other hand, it could say something like, hunker down and wait patiently because Jesus is going to come back and he's going to make it right. So just wait. It's sort of like the someday my prince will come method. Everything's going to be all right, so just chill. But look at Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 3. This is the real text, not Christopher's version. The author tells us what practicing his faith looks like, and I think it's shocking. The first encouragement is let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. And then the next encouragement is remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. See, it's not a military revolution, but it's just as costly. And it's not hunkering down and waiting for Jesus, but it's just as slow and painstaking. It's right in that terrible middle ground. And this is how we run the race set before us. This is how we follow the founder and perfecter of our faith. So the first encouragement is toward hospitality. I think the image of hospitality here, in, in light of all the like, hold fast to, to our confession and endure in the face of hard circumstances, hospitality is like, care, like building care centers and outposts and water stations along the way in the race. It's like having a water station, handing out cups to the runners, saying you can do it and giving nourishment. It's where we come together weary from the running and share encouragement and refreshment. We say, how's it going? How are you doing in in the battle? Come have a warm drink in the storm. Katie and I have lived here together for almost two years now, and we've been really blessed by getting to come into some of your homes and have dinner with you and having meals and fellowship. And honestly, equally encouraging to being welcomed into people's homes 
is just getting coffee with someone and, and getting to unload burdens on people. Getting to talk about real life experience and refreshing friendship. That's hospitality. That's offering an open-hearted perspective, letting outsiders into your life. The, the cultural meaning of hospitality is actually different from the Bible's meaning here. Hospitality is more than hosting dinner parties with pretty tablecloths. It's even more than opening your home to people. It, it, it can be expressed that way, but it's, it's more opening your heart to people. The word for hospitality used here and elsewhere in the New Testament is philoxenias, which means love for strangers, love for outsiders. You may recognize the Greek because xenophobia is fear of outsiders. And the author's telling us to be to have xenophilia, to love outsiders. Jesus' people are called to be xenophilic. That's an outright word of rebuke to most of white American evangelical voting bloc. We're supposed to be xenophilic. Xenophobia is a term commonly used for the white evangelical church in America. The city of Northampton in the last year has committed to welcoming 51 refugees. Awesome. I know this because uh, Paul Sorrentino, Paul and Karen Sorrentino are friends. Of my, Paul is the head of religious life at Amherst College and um, goes to College Church in Northampton. And, Northampton I mean, and College Church is one of the stations where refugees are being welcomed in. So Paul and Karen recently, this week, got a call. Hey, your refugee is here. And so they drove to the airport and picked up this woman who only speaks Swahili, so they can't communicate. She has three kids, and it's their job to love her and help her be established in Northampton. It's amazing. That's the heart of God, welcoming people in with no strings attached, just saying to them, we're going to make sure that you're loved and provided for. And you can stay with us until you find a place because Jesus loves you. They just welcomed her and her family into their family. It's amazing. The author of Hebrews is encouraging us toward a heart disposition that's open to strangers like that. Willing to let people into our lives in sacrificial and costly ways to celebrate and experience and share the love of God. That's the first encouragement is toward hospitality, open-hearted hospitality. And the next encouragement in verse 3 makes sense in that light. It says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. Put this back in context, right? Jesus has made a way. He's achieved victory in our behalf. He's provided welcome for us into God's presence. So in light of King, Jesus' kingdom's coming and our unshakable inheritance, what do we do? We remember prisoners. As though we were in prison with them, we regard ourselves as one in prison. We're called to love for strangers and radical empathy for criminals and the politically oppressed. We're supposed to remember them and we're supposed to so radically associate with them that we confuse our well-being with theirs. We're supposed to remember them as though we are in prison with them. So our story gets tied up with the lowly. Just think about how countercultural this is for a second. It's the kind of thing that we talk about in church, but just realize how radical this is. We're meant to love and sacrifice for those who can offer nothing in return. From a worldly perspective, this is the worst investment. The worst investment of our time and resources and our energy. It's flat out unstrategic. This is why it requires the kind of faith that he describes in chapter 11. If our hope is in approval 
and ease or wealth of resources, we won't be hospitable. It doesn't make any sense. Totally irrational. If our primary concern is maximizing our security and comfort, we won't welcome messy people into our lives. Hospitality, if we do it at all, will mean putting on a show for outsiders, for our own benefit, for the sake of approval. Because we won't have room in our lives for people who the world has rejected. They don't offer utility. But this kind of open-hearted hospitality and concern for the downcast are precisely the slow and painful kingdom-building acts of faithfulness that Jesus called us to. And they're the kind of slow and painful kingdom-building acts of obedience that bring honor to our king. That gritty, unrelenting obedience that displays where our hope lies. That says our hope is not in wealth. Our hope is not in resources or in comfort or ease. Our hope is in the victory that Jesus, is, Jesus has won. That's the faithful daily death in line with a pattern of Christ's life. Stanley Hauerwas, who's an ethicist, theologian, says, the church stands as a political alternative, alternative to every nation, witnessing to the kind of social life possible for those who have been formed by the story of Christ. Witnessing to the kind of social life possible for those who have been formed by the story of Christ. The story of Christ, the story that was inaugurated with the incarnation, when the divine son halo dropped into our world, when the almighty and self-sufficient Lord of heaven made his tent with dirty, smelly sinners. And what could we ever have offered him in return? Remember that it said that he upholds the universe with a word of his power. We have nothing to offer him in return. His story is inaugurated with the Incarnation, and it's characterized by a revolutionary regard for the lowly, the criminals, the sick, the morally reprehensible, the outcasts. And his story ultimately culminates in his shameful, seemingly unproductive, unstrategic death on behalf of the powerless. When you remember that, that though you were a stranger or even an enemy of God, he welcomed you into his family, that you, when you were condemned as a criminal, for your sin, were remembered by the high king and called worthy and beloved. When you remember that he's provided everything we need, our eternal security, our eternal provision, the hope of a future with the lover of our souls, stinginess is irrational in a kingdom that abundant. And how could we keep our hearts closed? Let me end with this. Praise God that he regards the lowly. Praise God that this is the character of his kingdom. See, he turns the, the values of the world on their head. In a world that, that values immediate results and success and power and dominance and authority, we serve a king who regards the lowly, who pours out his resources, who looked down from heaven and identifies with the broken and the hurting and the persecuted and the weak. Remember when Jesus confronts Saul on the road to Damascus. He says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus so identifies with the persecuted Christians that he calls them him. He says, you're persecuting me, the ones in prison. That's me. That's what Jesus says. He says, anything that you've done to the least of these, you've done for me. That's our king. He doesn't overlook anyone or disqualify anyone. And he poured out all of his heavenly authority and resources to come welcome convicts into heaven. 
as people saved by his unwarranted favor, we are to go and do likewise. We are to follow the author and perfecter of our faith. Let me pray, and then we'll do communion. Lord, we thank you that you regard the lowly, and we recognize that we deserve to be convicts and strangers to you. And yet you've identified yourself with us, Lord. You've come to find us and to love us. You've made us your people and called us your own. We thank you for the welcome that you provide into heaven, even though we don't deserve it. Lord, we pray that you would make us open-hearted people, that you'd make us uh, people whose hearts regard the lowly like you do. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.